So we are returning after about a year to look at the book of Acts, having looked at uh, some different things. Acts is the story of the first Christians and the first churches that they formed and their journeys out into the world. Now, I was uh, reading a newspaper article recently about church attendance, and usually newspaper articles about church attendance are depressing. But there is actually one place in the country now where church attendance is growing quite quickly. And it was a surprise to me to discover that that place is London. I tend to think of London as the heart of, like, secular elites, politicians and the BBC and all of those people who aren't big fans of Christianity who generally mock conservative Christians. But church groups that believe the Bible is God's word to be obeyed and hold unfashionable views about all sorts of things, those groups are growing significantly in London. Why is it? Well, it's because of immigration. Now, if you're British and you're my age, you're used to the idea of us sending missionaries to evangelize everybody in the world so everybody can get saved. But the truth is this, that faithful Christians from around the world are under God saving the church in the UK by coming here. And that's true in most places in the country where the church is growing. It's people from other countries who are meeting Jesus at church. Now, I'm saying that because Acts is the story of how God, that's the book that the article was about, by the way, but I have no intention of reading the book. It looks quite boring, doesn't it? So just read the article. <laughs> Acts is the story of how God gave his Holy Spirit to the first followers of Jesus, and they were empowered, and they took the message first to Judea, where Jesus lived, and then beyond Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And it was the story of how the church started in Jerusalem with Jewish apostles, but soon Antioch, which was not a Jewish city, became the alive centre of Christian mission to the world. And ages ago when we looked at this, where we stopped, we saw Paul, this great missionary, he discipled this refugee couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and then he left them in this city called Ephesus while he went back to Antioch for some rest and visited some already established churches. There's a map here of his journey. And if the clicker isn't working, there we go. A map here of his journey if you're interested in that. And that was disappointing if you're reading the story because he sort of arrived in Ephesus and then was like, I'm too tired basically, I can't, I can't share the gospel here. I'm going back to visit some other churches and home to Antioch, my home church. But in fact then what we discovered, without Paul even knowing was this mysterious person called Apollos arrived in Ephesus. He came from Egypt. And he was a learned professor type. He was already a Christian, but he was a little bit clueless. And the couple of tent makers who were Paul's friends, Priscilla and Aquila, they filled in the gaps in his knowledge, and then they released him into effective ministry, and he evangelized Ephesus while Paul wasn't there. And then he left Ephesus to go off to Corinth, which was probably the most godless pagan city of the whole empire. So Apollos was like hardy. He was like, I've done Ephesus now. It wasn't difficult enough. I'm going to Corinth. And off he went. And these are the type of great reversals that Christianity brings, that we're experiencing now in our own country. The people who make tents teach university professors who then 
go and do the evangelism in the place of missionaries who are tired. It's the type of thing that God does. The Spirit, Acts is telling us, is out and free, and he is doing stuff in the world. There's no privilege for the old guard. God is working everywhere in surprising ways. Well, Acts 19, which Zen is about to read to us, uh, shows Paul arriving back in Ephesus. Presumably, he's surprised to find that someone else has done some of the work that he hadn't felt able to do. But that's the way it is now. God does the work by his spirit. It doesn't need a special commission from anyone. And we will find God working in all sorts of ways we don't expect. The new normal is that God's spirit is poured out and God is always working and no one is indispensable. And we should be delighted if it is an immigrant from Egypt, Apollos, or anywhere else in the world coming to the UK saving our mission. That is a Holy Spirit thing. So we are going to read about Paul coming back to Ephesus probably about three years later and finding out about how he got on and Zen is going to come and read to us now. So if you would like a church Bible, if you could raise your hand up and someone will come round and hand them out to you. So today's passage is going to be on Acts 19, verse 1 to 22, which if you're using the church Bible, that's on page Born in Ephesus, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road to an interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, you have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hand on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some, some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. 
that even the handkerchief and apron that touched him were taken those who were ill, and the illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, you former preachers, I command you to come out. Seven sons deceiver, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped them all and overpowered them all. They gave them such a beating that they ran out naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number of Baptist sorcery brought the scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while I stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Thank you so much then. Well, as we now have uh, about, as far as anyone can tell, about less, well less probably, than one in 50 people in the UK attend churches that self-describe as evangelical or Bible-believing. I think we're getting to the point where our culture is becoming more and more, not even just sort of anti-Christian, but unfamiliar with Christianity, Uh, just not Christian. And that means we will have a lot to learn from this section of Acts, which is telling us how the gospel, the message that the Spirit gives the church, and totally godless, unfamiliar with God cultures are going to interact with each other. That's what this section of Acts is going to show us. Now you'll see in chapter 19 that Paul goes to the synagogue first, where Jewish people whose worldview he shared, you know, he went to talk to them first, but that passed very quickly. What we really have a record of here is Paul sharing the message in worlds where it's totally unknown. And it's a bit like electricity and water. These two very different forces are coming into conflict and there are explosions. Some amazing, we see this week, and some frightening, we'll see next week. So it's good for us to read this bit of Acts and study it as we live in a culture where it seems like, although as I said at first, not actually true, but it seems like Christianity is in decline and no one even shares the language that we use and being a Christian becomes a bit weird, it's good for us to read this section of Acts. Because I'm telling you, the temptation is when people think what you believe is strange, the temptation is just to hide. Just to be like, oh, everybody thinks we're odd. And the call of Acts is to, the call of the Spirit is to walk towards the conflict you might cause by living as a Christian and see what God does. It'll be something interesting. That's what Acts 19 shows us. First things first, though, what's with these strange group of believers who have repented but only heard of John, not Jesus? 
I wonder if they were an effect of old Apollos not quite being on top of his Bible teaching. So they've got that God is real, and they got that John, who came before Jesus, says you need to repent. They just haven't heard of Jesus properly. They haven't got the Jesus bit. They haven't got the, you know, yes, you should turn back to God and you should be sorry for your sins. They've got that. But they haven't got, when you come to Jesus, God actually will come into your life by the Holy Spirit. They haven't got that yet. They're at the sort of, I'm trying hard to be a good person stage. I'm not yet at the stage of, when you meet Jesus, God actually in, comes to indwell you. And so Paul, with his authority, baptizes them and lays his hands on them, and they have that experience. They receive the Spirit. I think that's not a totally uncommon experience. I'm, I remember doing a uh, summer camp once with someone who said that was my experience. I started reading the Bible. I realized God was there. And so I went away thinking, oh, I've been terrible at loving God. I must try harder to love him. And they did that for a long time, and they were pretty miserable and sad. Until a Christian said to them, do you know, if you come to God saying sorry through Jesus, he will actually come into your life and live in you and change you, and you don't need to constantly be worrying whether you're loving him well enough. And she did it, and she said it was like suddenly you know, pushing a lawnmower over grass. It was like suddenly the lawnmower was switched on. It was like I had this wonderful joy. So I think this experience they've had is not uncommon. Some people think it's a model for all Christians. You know, you repent at one point and then you receive the Spirit sometime later. I don't think that's right. The point is much more than wanting to be better, understanding God wants you to change. You need more than that to be a Christian. Through Jesus, you need to invite God actually into your life. That's when you become a Christian. The personal encounter with God comes through Jesus. So if you're at this stage where all you're doing is just aiming to morally change, you haven't got the whole deal. You need God uh, to actually come personally into your life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Belief in God plus wanting to be moral, that is not the jam. That is not the thing. That is half the story. Well, not even half, really. You need Jesus in your life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why is this all here? Well, I think that... There we go. Paul baptizes them. I think we are about to see two years of hard work that lead to some sort of revival in Ephesus, an outbreak of God's work in really remarkable ways in a culture that didn't know God at all. And that is not going to happen, I think we're learning, with a church full of moral people trying to be good who don't actually have a vibrant relationship with God through trusting Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. A group of people who think, all we should do is repent and try and be better, are never going to be the seeds of a revival. There's no spiritual life there. They needed to meet Jesus and be filled with his spirit. You know, we're seeing, as I said, Acts, this section of Acts is about how the gospel interacts with a culture that doesn't know anything about God. And the way that happens primarily is through people. A church, not particularly our church, but the church, everybody who trusts Jesus. 
And if a church is primarily interested in simply repenting, being better people, or telling others to be better people, if a church hasn't really got that being a Christian is knowing God's transforming power personally through Jesus, that church will not have any effect on the world, will not start anything. The message that we should all be better people is everywhere. You can find that in all religions and worldviews. The invitation to know God by his spirit and let that fire out is only in Jesus. If you trust Jesus, you have the spirit, but I still think there's something to learn here. With the interns earlier on this year, we were reading a book by a guy called Jaron Bars about sharing our faith. And he tells the story in the book about an American church that were having a pool party for their youth group. Not something I suggest we try here in this weather. Um, and they were saying, you can bring your friends who aren't Christians to church and to the pool party, and then we can invite them to church if you like. Not very sophisticated evangelistic technique, but that's what they were doing. And the lady who was running the pool party said, okay, that's all right with me, but you do need to tell all your friends, if you're going to invite them, that they must not wear two-piece swimming costumes, because that will mean the teenage boys get very, you know, hot under the collar, and they won't be able to cope. And the kids in the youth group said, well, if we start putting rules in the way of our friends coming to here, they won't come. And the woman running the youth group said, well, maybe you should get nicer friends. Now, can you see what's going on? It's a bit like what's going on in the start of Acts 19. It's as if that woman has only heard John's message. Repentance is good. But she's lacking the burning fire of love for Jesus and people who don't know Jesus that comes when you actually have the Holy Spirit. And we can all be like that. We can choose constantly Christian company because it makes us feel less out of place for choosing holiness. We can hide our children away from bad children because that's easier for Christian children. It's like repentance without the joyful fire of the Holy Spirit. And as long as that's what we're like, we certainly won't experience anything like a revival in our generation. Now, just to be clear, we're not lax about holiness. We're not saying repenting towards God, changing your behavior, that doesn't matter. The, but just that the transformation of ourselves is not moral and joyless and inward-looking withdrawal. That's not what the Spirit does. In the times that we have seen revival, great works of God in our country, the groups who've been at the center of it have been super committed to holiness. You think of like when the Salvation Army started or the Methodist revivals, you might know something about the history of that. The groups that started it were super committed to being holy people, but not at all in this sort of withdrawn, hiding way, but in this sort of spirit-empowered fire that they wanted to get out to the world. And that's what we seek. If we're thinking we should be good without the warm, real, transforming reality of the spirit, we're not going to see God work in our godless culture. So God-filled believers, and here's the second thing that we see, get the word to people. Now he's got his team of real Christians, Paul goes about his mission. First of all, to the synagogue, as always. Um, just worth noting as we go, 
that that's quite different for today. I think most of us assume it wouldn't be very respectful to go into another religion's place of worship and start evangelizing, but Paul isn't very worried about doing that. Just to be clear as well, given the bad history between that, the ways Christians have treated Jewish people, I'm not suggesting anybody goes and does that in the synagogue today, just to be clear, but Paul's view is Jesus should get a hearing anywhere. Even places where people say, no, we don't believe in him here. He's like, yes, but he should still have a hearing, so I'm going to tell you. Anyway, the synagogue threw him out, so he gets this lecture hall of Tyrannus. I mean, nobody knows who Tyrannus is. All we know is it was a hall for lectures owned by someone called Tyrannus. That is the sum total of what we know. We don't know how he afforded it. We know it probably wasn't a well-known place. It was just a private place to meet. I guess it was like they had no place of their own to meet. So it was like hiring, oh, I don't know, a school hall. If that gives you a place to bring people to hear about Jesus. And with his spirit-filled church and the persistence of two years, it says everyone in that province had heard the word, which we think is about two million people at the time. Um, getting the message in front of people so that they will listen is a very challenging thing to do. But Acts is saying, if you do it, some amazing things will happen. Now, worth noting, there was no interest in what Paul was saying in this culture. In fact, the religious people hated what he was saying, and no one else in the culture was saying, oh, yes, Paul, please come and sit in the lecture hall of Tyrannus because that's where we love to go to hear about religious ideas. Simply the spirit-empowered community of real people who knew God got the message into the ears of as many people as they possibly could over time, working hard, and amazing things happened. I've got a friend who is a pastor of another church in Liverpool, a very big church in Liverpool, and he surprised me once by saying, I'm against friendship evangelism. I was like, what do you mean? How can you be against that? Telling your friends about Jesus? What's going on? I was like, ooh, maybe that church is a cult after all. <laughs> but it's not. He said, what I'm against is this. Christians thinking, well, I have two or three people who I'm really close to, and I will constantly just pray for and share the gospel with those people. You know, every event that the church does, I'll invite that person. Of course, we will all have people like that in life, a spouse or a close friend or a sibling that we look for opportunities to share the faith with. But to be honest, if they're close to you and you're a relatively functional Christian, They've probably already heard what you have to say and are fed up with receiving invitations and you might be better just praying for them and living out your faith day by day and hoping things change than giving them endless cards to church events. Here's the thing that's going on though. While we're focusing on these two or three people, there are hundreds, thousands, millions of people in a godless or secular or totally not Christian culture who probably would be spiritually interested, but the gospel never gets in front of them. Why is that? Because Christians insist they have to be my really good friend before they get a chance to hear about Jesus. I don't know them well enough to put Jesus in front of them. 
Now, just to be clear, Christians build relationships with people, and then we'll talk about their faith and the relationships they have. Of course they have. That's, we love people. So we build relationships of love, and we share the best thing we've got. But that's not an evangelistic strategy. You know, go and make friends so you can find targets. Friends are to be friends with. People will clock that is what you're doing if you're just befriending them so you can force something on them. We love our neighbour because it's the right thing to do. Jesus tells us to. And in the end, that will involve sharing our faith out of thought. The thing we do in our culture, British culture, I think if you're here from another culture, you're probably different. British people tend to wait till we really, really know someone really well and we're really excellent friends till we start any sort of spiritual conversation at all. Why are we doing that? Here in the early church, their spirit-filled strategy was basically get the word in the ears of everyone in the region you possibly can. Now, to be clear, they weren't being offensive. Do you see the way he sets up in one place, Paul? So you see what he's not doing is wandering around the streets, forcing people to listen who don't want to listen. He's there, and people can come and hear if they like. He's not attacking anyone. God is at work bringing people, but his idea was, listen, if you get the gospel in front of loads and loads and loads of people, a significant number will respond. We tend to think, who do I know well and therefore I could begin a spiritual conversation with? Wrong question. That's my friend the pastor was saying. Scrap that question. Rubbish one. Here's a better one. Who around me might have some spiritual interest? Well, then get the message into their ears. Some won't be interested, including some people who are really close to you and you care about And that's their call. But if we get the word in the ears of a large number of people, God will do something. And dear Paul, make it clear you are there to speak to you about it if they want to. I've talked about how there aren't many people going to church today. It's small percentages. But have you noticed, and this is particularly true in Liverpool, everybody's connected to everybody. It's that type of city. Uh, where I come from in Northern Ireland, it's the same. It's immediately you meet someone and they say, where do you live? Say, oh, I live in the city centre. What do you do? Oh, uh, I work for a church. Oh, yes, my friend goes to church. Do you know them? Oh, yes, actually, they're married to someone who's at one of our church plants, blah, blah, blah. Liverpool is just like that all the time. It's exhausting, honestly. But if that's true, that does mean loads of people in Liverpool are connected to a Christian. Not particularly in our church, really our church is part of that, but in the patchwork of many great churches there are in the city. So it's actually quite easy for us to make sure interested people hear if they want to. If all of us are sort of connected and all of us were looking out for and looking for chances for people to express spiritual interest and then being able to tell them and saying, you know where I am to talk about this, who knows what might happen? In some places, you can't be public about sharing the gospel, and that so means you have to start small just with friendship, and there's nothing wrong with that. But where there's freedom, which there is, 
Paul just gets the message out by as many people as possible hearing. And soon everybody in the whole region has heard something about Jesus and things begin to happen. That's the next thing we see, strange things happen. The periods that the church has historically called revivals are when a large number of people hear about Jesus, there's incredible spiritual hunger, lots of people repent and turn to God, Christians long to pray and praise together and experience the joy of coming back to God. And when those outbreaks of God's work happen, there are often other more physically observable miracles. And so it is here. People are being healed, even by clothing that Paul has touched. It seems very strange, but then strange things do happen when spirit-filled Christians are getting the words into ears of a large number of spiritually hungry people. It seems when that happens, there are often outbreaks of God's power in really bizarre ways. I was reading this week to get ready for this about a guy called Jonathan Edwards, not the triple jumper, but the Christian writer. Uh, And he uh, was in a pioneering place in America and he spread the gospel to lots of people. He didn't believe that God still healed people today. That was his theology, I don't agree with it, but that's what he thought. But he writes in his things about he had a revival in this place called Northampton where hundreds of people become Christians. And he writes in his diary saying, and another strange thing has happened this month. Everybody is very healthy. Uh, They had a terrible sort of plague of smallpox. He was like, no one is getting smallpox at the moment. So it seems to be that when there's this outbreak of people coming to know God, other good things happen too. And of course, in the ancient world, as in Jonathan Edwards' time, health was a much more tenuous business because there was no NHS or antibiotics or hospitals. So this was a really significant thing for people to be able to access healing and health. Now, as well as that, some other strange things happened. Some people who weren't Christians... They were Jewish people, the seven sons of Sceva, went round casting out demons even though they weren't believers themselves. And I love the comedy way that the evil spirits talk back to them. They sort of say to them, okay guys, we'd be scared of Jesus and we've heard of Paul, but who are you? Yeah, we're not so much scared of you. And they beat them up. And I love the little detail that they run out of the house naked and bleeding. That's quite the fight, isn't it, that they have with these people. Now, demon possession is not something we see often now. I suspect we would see more of it if we were pioneering ahead to a godless culture with the gospel in this spirit-filled way. You would provoke the opposition of evil forces if you were doing that. But what we see here is that false people will crop up at the edges of any outbreak of God's power. There will be plenty of people who love the drama and don't want the heart change, particularly people who are already religious. Again, if you read the history of revivals, there's religious people who wouldn't let Christians preach because they think, oh no, you'll upset the status quo. And so they ended up like going out into the fields and down the lanes to tell people about Jesus because the churches wouldn't let them in. But of course, as soon as all the hundreds of people started becoming Christians, the religious people said, oh, well, we must get them into our church. Get them giving. Get them uh, serving. Religious people always want the glory without the heart change. That's what's going on with these seven sons. And that is a warning. It's possible to be on the fringes 
of a spirit-filled community to really want and even join in with the spiritual things that are going on, but not to have turned to Jesus yourself. Particularly if you're already religious in some way. You know, people talking about God and people praying and talking about being healed and evil being defeated. That's not a strange thing to you. And so you can act like you're part of it. But not have turned to Jesus yourself. Maybe there is, really is a move of God in your community. Maybe in your language community or people in your country. Lots of those people are becoming Christians. It would be easy just to go along with that because it's fun or easy or the community is nice. But this story is here to say, no, are you personally turning to Jesus and accepting him and letting him have your life? It's a possibility to go along and even do very powerful things and not be the real deal yourself. I see it a lot in uh, university Christian unions. There are lovely people in Christian unions, lovely Christians, and they're in the forefront of mission. And so you find students who just sort of join in because everyone is, and it seems exciting, and you all have a nice time together. And then after a while, they're like, but I'm not sure this is really real to me. And that's 18, 19, says shouldn't be surprised. There'll always be people like that. Be careful that you don't just join in with the activity without experiencing the reality. So strange things happen. Here's the last thing we see, that these false hangers-on achieve God's purposes. They were ready to say when people are faking it. We need to be ready to that. We need to say if there's a genuine move of God, there will always be fakers. That shouldn't worry us too much to warn us against cynicism. That is true to say, by the way. Um, occasionally, obviously God is doing something in one part of the world. But there's also some dodgy people involved in it. You know, God is uh, doing something great. Loads of people are becoming Christians. And then some person pops up and says, yes, and if you give me all your money, all your family will be healed. That's it's often what happens. Dodgy people arise at the edge of these things. Happen in Acts, it will happen. That shouldn't make us think God never does this type of thing. We shouldn't be cynical. It happened then, it will happen now. And in the end, they achieve God's purposes because what happens is everybody's so freaked out that the name of Jesus is held in high honor. That's how the writer describes it, which is what we want. Do you notice it's the people who are already believers see these strange goings on and they come out and they confess their sin to each other and their people burn what belongs to their old life. And it's expensive. 50,000 drachmas, a drachmas a day's wages. I worked out the equivalent is there for about four million pounds. Um, or 35% over that if you're a junior doctor. <laughs> four million pounds worth of stuff of sorcery burnt. Now there's so much that's interesting here. It's people who are already Christians coming under conviction that they needed to confess and leave more of their old life behind. Interesting, no one told them. So there is no reason for Christians here to go into another culture and start telling people to burn their books. That's not what happened. 
They were moved by God to see something was necessary in order to honor Jesus. And the result of this mighty work of God was that Christians, first of all, were ready to confess their ties to the world were too strong and ready at their own cost to get rid of what was holding them back. Now, it's mysterious. What has this got to do with the demons not recognizing the authority of the fake believers? I don't know. Why did that happening make them burn their books? I've got no clue. I can't make head nor tail of that. Why did that lead to Jesus being honored? That's not clear to me. There's so much that's mysterious. But here is what's clear, that people in cultures that know nothing of God can be so moved and impressed and filled with the desire to honor Jesus that they're ready to own up to what they've done wrong and ready to give up costly things that tie them to their old life. There is that power in a spirit-filled community offering Jesus to people. And that's why, like these first Christians, we must not hide. Godless cultures give the impression, don't they, of being this like hard stone surface. You know, you think I'm going to tell people about Jesus, but we'll just bounce off. There's no point. That's what they look like. We look at people in our culture and we think, gosh, it would mean so much for them if they became a Christian. They'd have to give up so much. They'd have to step out of what everybody thinks is normal and good and healthy. They won't do it. It's easier to huddle. But when spirit-filled Christians get the word in front of people, God starts doing something. People will become swept up in this burning, overwhelming desire for the name of Jesus to be highly honored, so they will give up what's holding them back, even if it's great cost. We do, we believe that can happen. And if we do, stop hiding. Get the words in the ears of as many people as you can. Luke's description of it is, at the end of the story, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And this great purifying work of God led to this massive social change so that even the people with money sat up and took notice. And we'll read more about that next week. Well, this is all very exciting, interesting, strange story. Here's my question as we finish. Do we want it? Thank you. <laughs> we want to say, of course we do, when we think of people hearing and coming to faith and healings and miracles. But remember this. The effect of this happening was that people who were already Christians confessed their sin to each other. And people who were already Christians were ready to radically give up what was tying them to a godless life. And honestly, sometimes, I think we don't want that. It is easier to go along, not cooperating with God's plan to reach the world, with a flat, socially acceptable, boring set of priorities, because if God really did this, it would move me to confession and repentance. The Spirit would upend my life. It would mean things I value being burned because they're tying us to the world. So the truth is asking us a question. 
It is true that not hiding, spirit-filled Christians who know God can so fit in with God's plan by bringing the message to everyone that God's power will break out. But that will mean my soul and yours being rinsed out with the spirit-given desire for Jesus to be honoured. The question is not, can God do it? The question is, do we want it?